Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, for those who are new to our church or newer, uh, my name is Josh Tong. Um, I'm not the pastor here. Um, I am a baby preacher. Um, basically, our pastor Tim has has uh, assembled a bunch of us who are interested in ministry uh, to uh, form a preaching team, uh, and we take turns. Uh, going through a different chapter of the Bible, uh, following a, a series, and uh, today's today's my turn. Uh, it's it's a great privilege to be preaching to you. Um, if you're visiting for the first time, I'm sorry that you couldn't see our celebrity pastor, uh, Pastor Tim Kerr, uh, but you'll just have to come back uh, next uh, next Sunday. Uh, so t- so we've been going through uh, a series on the Book of Ruth uh, as a preaching team. Uh, This is actually the last sermon in that series, uh, Ruth chapter 4. I admit, when Pastor Tim first told me uh, that we were going to be doing this book, I wasn't that excited. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I find it sometimes very difficult to uh, get much from some of these simple Old Testament stories, uh, and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to uh, preach a message uh, that pointed you to Christ uh, and that taught you something about God. Um, but as I really kind of dug into the, the details of the story, uh, I began to, uh, I, th- I, f- I really feel that God was leading my heart to something precious about him. Uh, it took a lot of work uh, uh, and a lot of prayer uh, to lead me through that path. Um, but in the end, uh, I'm so thankful that we have the chance to go through this text together um, unfortunately for you, if, it, if, if the preacher has to do a lot of work to get to the message, it means that you'll have to do a lot of work as you listen. Um, but if you follow along, I'm sure that you're, you're going to derive a lot of benefit uh, from this message. Uh, so before I begin, uh, let's just open in prayer. Father, we marvel at the fact that you gave us your word, this sacred book that reflects your truth, that reflects how you intervened in history through, uh, through ordinary people, through a course of thousands of years, and we open it today to this little story about uh, a blossoming romance between two individuals out in the country, one needing love and the other providing that love. So we pray, Lord, that uh, as we go through this uh, text, you would encourage our hearts with your love. You would show and reveal yourself to us through this little story. And at the end, Lord, uh, we would marvel at the great love that you have for us. Help me, Lord, uh, to speak clearly, uh, to reflect this message that is yours well. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for all our benefits, I'm just going to summarize the story in Ruth uh, a little bit uh, before I get into chapter 4. The story begins with a family from Israel. Uh, Husband's name is Elimelech, wife's name is Naomi, and they have two sons. Uh, It's a time of famine in Israel. There's the equivalent of of unemployment, I guess, in our current times. And so they needed to go find work. Uh, So they travel out to a foreign land uh, called Moab. They move out of Israel 
where God had, had allocated land to them into a foreign land called Moab. And Moab is uh, uh, it's an interesting place. It has some ties to Israel historically, but at this time, uh, the Moabites had come to, to worship other gods. And at times, in Israel's journey to the land that God had promised to them, Moab had even uh, uh, oppressed Israel. They had, they had resisted their entry into the promised land. In a way, they were enemies. Uh, but this little family... Uh, moves to Moab in search of food. While they're there, uh, the father and the two sons pass away, uh, leaving uh, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Her two sons had married Moabite women, uh, wisely or unwisely, uh, perhaps we could say unwisely, because they were Moabites worshipping other gods. Uh, But she's left with her two daughters-in-law. She hears that... uh, uh, God had provided food for God's people in Israel again, and she plans to return. Uh, and in making those plans, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, decides to go with her. Uh, in making that pledge to go with um, Naomi, Ruth promises that she's leaving her people, she's leaving her gods, and the God of Israel and God's people Israel will be her people and her God. So they travel back to Bethlehem in Israel. Uh, Naomi, of course, is left without her husband and her uh, two sons. And so the only caregiver, really, that she has is Ruth. Uh, Ruth ends up going to a a field uh, to gather some grain. And there she meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is a very godly man. He owns the field uh, in which Ruth was was working. And uh, a little romance starts blossoming between the two. Uh, When Ruth goes back home, she tells Naomi, hey, I met this man named Boaz. He was very nice. Uh, He he went out of his way to kind of look after me and make sure that that no one took advantage of me in those fields. Uh, uh, Naomi uh, is overjoyed. Maybe perhaps uh, 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 partly because Boaz was looking after her daughter-in-law, but mainly uh, because she knows who Boaz is. Boaz is a, a special man. Uh, He's a family member of her husband's. Uh, And this family member uh, has a special right to marry Ruth and to bear children with her, to take care of Naomi and Ruth and to continue the line, the family line of Ruth's husband. So Naomi hatches a plan to have Boaz exercise this right of marrying Ruth. Ultimately, the choice is up to him. Uh, It's a very ambitious plan that involves blankets and wine and feet. Uh, I won't get into all the details, but uh, long story short, it works. Uh, Lo and behold, it works. Boaz is more than happy to marry her. Uh, In fact, he was actually really looking forward to it. Uh, when, when, when Ruth asks him, uh, will you redeem me? He says, uh, I want to redeem you, but there's someone else in front of me. Someone else who has kind of priority of right uh, to marry you first if he wants. So he'd been thinking about this. He'd been kind of planning, uh, planning things, putting his eggs in a row, and he knew exactly what needed to be done before he could redeem Ruth. Uh, so he, he, he sets off right away to find this other family member, this other redeemer, uh, to see if 
he will exercise this right of redemption or if uh, Boaz will have the joy of marrying Ruth. That's where we are uh, in chapter 4. In the previous sermons in this series uh, on chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've learned a lot of precious things about God. Uh, Chapter 1, preached by uh, Nathan Fullerton, we learned about God's providence, which is how he uses the difficulties and trials in our lives uh, to somehow teach us and lead us and ultimately benefit us for our good. Uh, In chapter 2, Andrew preached about uh, God's love, uh, kind of focusing on the the blossoming love between Ruth and Boaz uh, to show us a special kind of love that God has for us, uh, this this love called chesed, uh, a Hebrew kind of concept of of love that, that gives and pours without asking for anything in return. In chapter 3, uh, preached just a couple of weeks ago by Ron Gleason, uh, we learned that the way that Boaz loved Ruth teaches us something very special about how Christ loved us on the cross. The way that Boaz redeemed Ruth, or planned to redeem Ruth, uh, in chapter 3, uh, says something very special and many special things about how Christ redeems us. I'm going to follow along in that theme, uh, looking at how Boaz's example uh, points us to Christ and shows us something very precious. So let's read uh, chapter 4 together. I'll be reading through the whole chapter. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. This is the other redeemer that has priority of redemption over uh, Boaz. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those are uh, Naomi and Elimelech's sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers 
and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So just as a um, uh, encouragement to you, perhaps, when, if, you're, if you're hearing that and weren't really sure what's going on, I'm going to explain some of the historical context and cultural facts that will help us to understand exactly what's going on here. So if I could uh, summarize today's message, I would do it like this. Um, I hope to show you two things about God's love for us through the examples of Boaz and Ruth. Through Boaz, we see God's deep love for us. Through Ruth, we see that this love is undeserved. Okay, so chapter 4 begins with an encounter between Boaz and the other Redeemer. In verse 4, Boaz asks the other Redeemer if he's interested in redeeming Naomi's land. At this point, you might say, wait a second here. I thought he was interested in talking about redeeming Ruth. Where did this talk about the redemption of land come from? If you look, if you look back to chapter 3, uh, verse 9, when Ruth is, is first proposing to uh, Boaz this idea of redemption, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are redeemer. She's asking him to spread his wings over her. And uh, in verse 13, Boaz says, uh, remain tonight and in the morning, if he, the other redeemer, redeemer, uh, will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So the plan was to have Ruth redeemed. Here, uh, Boaz is telling the other redeemer that Uh, The land needs to be redeemed. What's going on here? Uh, At this point, we actually learn that there are two redemptions, the redemption of land and the redemption of Ruth. Uh, It may seem a little bit technical, but when I explain uh, uh, what's going on here, it's going to make a lot of sense. Um, This is also where we're going to have to start digging a bit into the cultural, uh, historical facts. Uh, If you pay attention, I promise there will be something uh, special at the end. 
So, first, this redemption of land. In Old Testament times, the land of Israel was divided among families. Uh, This land was promised by God to Israel to be this uh, a special land for them. Uh, and he wanted, God wanted the people of Israel to have this land forever. And so he divided among the, the different families, and though he gave them the right to sell the land if they needed to, uh, he made sure that the land would always return back to the family that originally owned it. Uh, this could happen in a number of ways. Uh, if the family sold their land They could buy it back if they uh, got enough money for it. It's unlikely because the land was the source of their capital. If they sell their land, uh, where are they going to get the money from? Um, They could get uh, a family member to buy it back for them. uh, Or they could wait until a special year called the year of Jubilee that happens every 50 years where all the land that was uh, uh, sold by families would be returned to them. So the the option that uh, we're interested in is this idea of a family member buying back the land for the family that sold it. Uh, This exercise or practice was called the redemption of land. So what does it mean to redeem? We'll go through a couple of definitions here. Generally speaking, to redeem means to free from oppressive circumstances by paying a price. In the context of land, the land would be freed from being owned by another family member by paying the price for the land, redemption of land. The person doing the the redeeming was called uh, the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman simply means a family member, and he's a kinsman redeemer because he's the family member who is redeeming the land. We get this practice from uh, another book of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 25, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So this practice sounds uh, probably most likely a little bit foreign to our ears Uh, in our culture, you sell the land, uh, it's sold. It'll never return to you. Uh, There's really a special purpose behind this practice, though. Uh, God was making sure that every family in Israel would always have land to return to. He was preventing, really, this this, uh, separation between income classes, where uh, some Israelite families would have a lot of land and through having a lot of land would be able to produce more grain and therefore uh, buy more land. The more have more uh, and the less have less. Um, This uh, prevents that from happening and God really shows his care for uh, the families of Israel by giving them this right of redemption. So while the book of Ruth doesn't expressly say at any point that Naomi and her husband Elimelech sold their land, uh, there's a variety of reasons why we can come to that conclusion. In chapter 1, for example, uh, you don't have to turn there, uh, we're told that Elimelech and his family left Israel uh, to go to Moab. Um, It's really unlikely that they would have uh, left 
without having exhausted all options to stay with their people. Uh, That would have included selling all or part of their family land. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 22, uh, it says that Ruth and Naomi returned from Moab to Bethlehem, to kind of the town proper. Uh, It doesn't actually say that they were able to return to Elimelech's family land. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth had to go and glean uh, grain, uh, gather crops from someone else's property. It wasn't open to her to plant crops on her own, uh, on Naomi's family land. Uh, She had to go to someone else's land. And then uh, in our chapter, verse 4, Boaz asks the other redeemer if he will redeem Naomi's land. This wouldn't be necessary if Naomi still had full ownership over the land. Uh, Verse 3 does say that Naomi is selling the parcel of land, but I think this just shows that Naomi still owned part of it. She sold part of it and retained part of it. That's why the land needs to be redeemed, and that's why Naomi is selling the land as well. All right, Uh, that's the first part, the redemption of land. The second redemption is the redemption of Ruth. As explained in earlier sermons, if a woman's husband died before they had children, the Old Testament required the, the deceased husband's brother, so the widow's brother-in-law, uh, to marry her and have children with her. And these children would uh, be counted as the deceased husband's children. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's a little bit complex. We almost need a family tree. Uh, but uh, thanks a lot for paying attention. Uh, the important part of that is, is those children born out of this marriage would be counted as the deceased husband's children. That's how the other family member, who, the brother who married in, would be redeeming the land. He would make sure that the family line would not cease. It could continue, even though they didn't actually have children together. We get this practice from Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead's brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this passage doesn't actually describe the marrying brother as a redeemer, but he functions as one. um, Since he frees them from the circumstance of having no children continue their family name. The thing about this redeemer is uh, he had to be not only able to redeem, being a family member, but he had to be willing to redeem. Uh, Later on in chapter 25, uh, it talks about what happens if the brother doesn't want to redeem. Uh, It says that, you know, he'll be shamed in the community, but ultimately it was his choice. So for someone to act as a redeemer, he had to be both able as a kinsman and willing. All right, so with this digging into historical context in mind, let's turn back to our story. So Boaz meets with the other redeemer, to find out whether he's interested in redeeming Naomi's land. To our dismay, and likely Boaz's as well, because we want this this romance to blossom and and bear fruit in marriage, uh, the other redeemer says, 
I am willing. I will redeem it, he says. At this point, though, Boaz informs the other redeemer of the consequence of redeeming the land. Verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So if you redeem the land, you must redeem Ruth. The two redemptions go together. You can't have one without the other. So just notice how Boaz presents the redemption of Ruth to the other redeemer. He points out that she's a Moabite. She's uh, ethnically related to our enemies. Uh, They worship other gods. They have dirty practices. Do you really want to marry her? Uh, She's a foreigner who comes from a strange land full of people who worship a false god. Ruth is a widow. She's associated with with death. Uh, You know, she... She already outlived one husband. Why not two? Ruth has been barren. She's been unable to uh, have any children. In, in these uh, ancient times, barrenness was associated with uh, kind of God's displeasure. Uh, do you really want to marry this woman? So at this point, the other redeemer backs out and provides this reason at, chapter, uh, at verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So it seems that the excuse that he comes up with is he's concerned that any children that he has with his first wife, so his biological children who will inherit his land, uh, their inheritance will be somehow uh, threatened by these other children that he would have with Ruth. But as we know, uh, there's a problem with this, uh, with this belief. We know that the children born out of a redeemed marriage would fall under the family line of the deceased husband. That's what we read earlier uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, he would have no claim over the redeemer's land. They'd be nice and separate. The children you have with your first wife, they will inherit your land and the children that you have with, as part of this redeemed marriage are, uh, will inherit the other land. There's no threat to your own children. So what's going on here? It's really two options. Either A, he didn't know his Bible very well, or B, he made up an excuse because he didn't want to marry Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was a widow. She was barren. I think this is the more likely reason why he came up with this excuse. And so, to the other redeemer, a piece of land was more valuable to him than Ruth. To some extent, this was understandable. He could use the land to grow crops. He would receive approval from the community for his generosity and grace shown towards this other family. But what would he do with a woman with credentials like Ruth? Nothing. She was useless to him. Perhaps he even feared that marrying a foreigner would tarnish his own reputation in the community. After all, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. So he gave up his right to redeem the land because he wasn't willing to pay the price of marrying Ruth. She was the unattractive part of the deal. He didn't want to redeem her. The price was too high. So who will redeem this barren foreigner Who will love the one whom no one else would love? Boaz. 
Boaz is willing. But Boaz isn't just willing to marry Ruth so that he could get the land. He's willing to buy the land so that he can get Ruth. He couldn't have cared less about the land. The redemption of Ruth was what he wanted. As we saw in chapter 3, the whole discussion between Ruth and Boaz about this redemption all centered on the redemption of her. They don't mention land at all. The redemption of the land was merely a means to the end of marrying Ruth. And so he pays the price of redeeming the land so that he could take her as his wife. Boaz redeems Ruth as one who is both willing and able, and as the only one who is both willing and able. In the same way, Christ was the only one, both willing and able, to redeem us. There was no one else who could have done it. Christ was our Boaz. Like Ruth, we needed to be redeemed from being barren. Ruth's barrenness was physical. She couldn't have children. Our barrenness is spiritual. In our human nature, we're absolutely unable to produce good works that fully honor God. We can do some good, like uh, um, Amanda shared with us, uh, because we are made in the image of God. We, we, We have characteristics that reflect his character, but ultimately all of our good works are tainted in some way. Uh, We don't do it for the glory of God, for example. Perhaps we do it to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're spiritually barren. And like Ruth, we needed to be redeemed from our position as outsiders. Ruth's exclusion was ethnically based, but our exclusion is based on our sin. Our sin caused us to be alienated and separated from God so that we no longer knew him. We need a redeemer who can free us from this oppression. We need a redeemer who is both able and willing to redeem us. So our kinsman redeemer, let's talk about what our kinsman redeemer needed to be. What makes a a person able to redeem us from our spiritual condition? Our kinsman redeemer needed to be a human being because only a human could act as a substitute for another human being. Our kinsman redeemer also needed to be perfect because only a perfect redeemer could pay the penalty of sin for another. Otherwise, he'd be paying the price of his own sin. So Christ became able by taking on flesh, human flesh, and living a perfect life for us. Christ became our kinsman redeemer so that he would be able to redeem us. But his work for us doesn't stop there. He wasn't only able to redeem us, he was willing. The price of our redemption was his suffering and death on the cross. The price of our redemption was the greatest price that could have been asked of him. And like Boaz, he was willing to pay the great price. Jesus told us in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus alone was willing and able to redeem us. 
Our kinsman redeemer paid the price of our redemption, and now we are free from the barrenness and alienation that we suffered apart from God. Now in Christ, we are free to live spiritually fruitful lives. Now in Christ, we are free to know and worship our God and creator. I'm going to skip this part of the sermon and uh, get to uh, the second half. See, I'm running out of time. Tim really puts us in the catch-22. He tells us we, need, we have half an hour to preach uh, and then gives us a whole chapter. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I'm, I'm already past half an hour, so hopefully this won't take too much longer. Um, I want to focus now on Ruth. What does Ruth teach us about God? Um, in the end, I think it's ultimately fitting to end our series on Ruth with a meditation on Ruth, uh, because the book is called Ruth. It's, uh, it's not called Boaz. It's not called Naomi. It's called Ruth. Uh, so what does Ruth teach us about God? The most significant hint comes in the last few verses of the book when the author of Ruth ends by tracing Ruth's descendants down to David. Um, I'm not going to read the genealogies again, but uh, there are really two genealogies here. Uh, first, in verse 17, the author points out that uh, Ruth and Boaz's son is Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. And then in the second uh, genealogy, it traces David all the way back to this man named Perez. So why does the author do this? Uh, the thing common about these two genealogies is it traces it back to David. Uh, David has no relation to this story. Um, and so I think the author is trying to tell us something special, uh, something very specific about the fact that David is descended from Ruth and Boaz. David, of course, is, is King David, uh, the greatest king that Israel ever knew. So we have to uh, do a little bit of digging here again. Uh, looking at genealogies, uh, I'm sure you didn't picture yourself doing this on a Sunday afternoon. Um, but again, uh, I think it's worth it. All right, so we learn about Perez in Genesis chapter 38. You don't have to turn there, I'll just summarize the story for you. Uh, we learn that Perez was born out of an incest- incestuous relationship. Incest is when two family members get together and sleep together. <clears throat> Perez's parents uh, were uh, Judah and a woman named Tamar. Uh, so Judah is one of the original sons of Israel who forms uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there's Israel and then he has 12 kids One of the kids is Judah, and God uses those kids to uh, proliferate, really, the the people of God. So Judah, uh, he has a daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar is married to his son. After Tamar's husband dies, uh, he he has no children with her, Uh, Tamar needs to be redeemed. Judah's not willing to do that, and so Tamar tricks him into actually sleeping with her himself. Uh, And the fruit of this incestuous relationship is Perez. So the connection between Perez and Ruth's story then is that both Perez and Obed 
were born through redemption. But both redemptions were also not quite right. There's something wrong with them. Perez was born out of an incestuous relationship, and Obed was born of the redemption of a Moabite woman. As we know, uh, Moabites were enemies of Israel. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God specifically said, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So why does this matter? I think it teaches us two very profound things about God. The first is that God demonstrates the vastness of his grace and mercy through the line of Perez. God could have punished Judah for committing incest with Tamar. Indeed, God's justice demanded a punishment. He could have cut off the whole line of Judah uh, down from Perez because the root of it was this incestuous relationship. Similarly, he could have punished Boaz for marrying Ruth because she was a Moabite, and God had expressly forbidden the entry of Moabites into uh, his assembly. But God doesn't do any of this. Instead, God chooses this tainted line from Perez, from which the greatest king that Israel had ever known would descend. David was hand-selected by God to be the second king of Israel. It was no accident. God chose him, knowing the line from which he came. David was used by God to solidify Israel's presence in the promised land through courage and military genius. But he also chose him to be the writer of uh, one of the most loved books of the Bible, uh, the Psalms, or at least half of the book of uh, of Psalms. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Even more than that, though, we know that not only David was descended from this tainted line from Perez, Jesus Christ himself descended. This was a choice by God. He chose this line of Perez to plant his son in. The one who came to save the world, Jesus Christ, the one who came to save the world through grace, had grace written into his bloodlines. God could have chosen any family for his son to enter. He could have chosen the most ethnically pure line. Instead, he chose one with Gentile blood in it. He could have chosen the most morally pure line. Instead, he chose one that descended through incest and forbidden marriage. By doing so, God shows us that he is the great redeemer. He can redeem even the most tainted of lines, the most lowly of people. He takes the weak things of the world and does amazing things through them. And this leads me to the second thing we learn about God. We learn that God often has a special role. He doesn't just redeem these, these weak things. He has a special role for them. He doesn't just decide not to punish people like Judah and Boaz. He chooses to plant David and Jesus into their line. The Jews are a people who are fiercely loyal to their ethnicity. Part of the reason for this is that God commanded them to remain pure and, uh, uh, 
ethnically by not marrying other people. But I think the main reason for this racial loyalty comes down to their, their pride and their ethnicity. They were proud of being God's chosen people. They're proud of being the one nation in the earth that received God's law and word and covenants. They were proud of being the people from whom the prophesied Messiah, who would reign over all the earth, would come. So God flips their world upside down by choosing the tainted line of Perez from which both King David and the King of Kings would descend. God shows them that their blood, in and of itself, means nothing to him. They are God's people, not because there's something inherently good in them. They are God's people simply because he chose them to be his people. And if he can choose them to be his people, he can choose anyone to be his people. This is what he does through Ruth and Boaz. He chooses their bloodline for King David and for his son. So that as we read, as John uh, read for us earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would be fulfilled. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what do we do with these truths? On the one hand, they they, they teach us really precious things about God, that Christ was our only and willing redeemer, and that Christ redeems the weak things of the world and uses them for his glorious purposes. But I want to bring this back to kind of our our own personal lives and and see how it affects us on a day-to-day basis. So first, this is for those who relate to Ruth, people who never really felt like you belonged. Maybe people have looked down on you because you're not the same as everyone else or you don't possess the qualities they value. For the kids and teenagers in our church, maybe you struggle to make friends. You feel like an outsider. People haven't really accepted you. I felt like this when I was a teenager. When I was in grade nine, there was a group of people I really wanted to fit in with. Uh, but during the breaks between classes, you know, they'd hang out, they'd, they'd, they'd crack jokes with one another and form this big circle where they'd all kind of powwow together. Uh, I wasn't part of the circle. Uh, there was no room for me in the circle, so I just stood on the outside of the circle, listening to them and trying to laugh at their jokes. But in the end, they didn't even acknowledge my presence. Maybe you feel like that. You're outside of, of a circle and you, you don't feel accepted. For the adults in our church, perhaps you struggle with not having the approval of your peers or friends or family members. Maybe you don't have the job that your parents always thought you would have. Maybe your net income is below average. As a result of, of this or any other reason, perhaps you felt like you've never really been accepted or approved by these people. Ruth was treated like this by the other redeemer. He didn't want to be her friend. He didn't want to have a relationship with her. She didn't possess the qualities that he valued. Boaz did. He loved Ruth more than anything. And he showed her this by redeeming her. Christ is your Boaz. He has loved you with a great love. And he shows you the greatness of his love by redeeming you on the cross. His love can satisfy your longing to belong 
to be accepted, to be valued. His love will satisfy your deepest needs. And second, I want to encourage everyone in the church to be like Boaz. God used Boaz to show the world how he loves us, just like we've just reflected on. So if God could use Boaz, why can't he use you? Why can't he use us to show the world something about himself too? We just finished our week of prayer on the theme of forgiven sinners forgive sin. Uh, my prayer and the prayer of, of the team that, that uh, assembled that booklet is that we would become a people so willing and so able and so ready to forgive others when they hurt us and harm us that others will see a forgiving God in us. Or perhaps we can play a part in redeeming others like Boaz redeemed Ruth. Think about people who live in oppressive circumstances, orphans who grew up without parents, kids who live in violent homes, people who have lost their homes and become homeless. God can use you to free these people from their oppressive circumstances in really practical ways. For example, our church has been a big supporter of a program called Safe Families, uh, hosted by uh, one of our sister churches, Westminster Chapel. Um, This program temporarily places kids uh, living in difficult homes with a Christian family, just temporarily for a time, to give the parents some time to bring some order back to their lives. And in this way, they can skip the whole government system of of, of the Children's Aid Society where, you know, three strikes you're out, you lose your kids. Uh, they, they, they don't have to give up their kids because they feel like they can't uh, cope with it. Um, this is a way that we can practically help people who are facing oppressive circumstances. And in doing this, we show the world that God is still in the business of redeeming people, pointing to the ultimate redemption accomplished on the cross by his son. So as you consider how you might be a Boaz in this world, I encourage you to think about the Ruths in the world, the people who don't fit in, the people who aren't valued as highly. God doesn't only want to redeem them. He has a special plan for the weak things of the world. He wants to use them for his glorious purposes. He wants to use them to show that he looks beyond the qualities and possessions that our world values. And he wants to use them to bring great glory to himself. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the great love that you have shown to us in your son. The same love multiplied tenfold or a hundredfold that Boaz had for Ruth. Shown to us when Christ paid the price of our redemption on the cross so that we could be freed from the penalty of our sin and from the slavery of our sin. And we praise you, Lord, that you use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We are moved today by how you use this this line of, of Boaz and Ruth to place your son. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this more and more in our day, that you would raise up the weak things of the world to show that none of us have anything to boast about except Christ and him crucified. May you do this, Lord, in our day, in your sovereignty, and through your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.